So the message today is entitled, The Triumph of the Savior. The year was 1928, and the times were hard. The months before the stock market crashed had sent America into what was known as the Great Depression were so uncertain that everybody was looking for a Messiah. And in 1928, Louisiana, the Messiah showed up. At least that's what the people and the voters in Louisiana believed. U.E.P. Long, that's a picture of him there, was elected governor of Louisiana in 1928. He had won the hearts of the people of the state by speaking their language using means no one had ever tried before. Long was one of the first politicians to use radio and sound trucks that would ride through the streets proclaiming Long as the hope for Louisiana. The working class had never seen a political candidate face to face and Huey Long wanted to make sure that they wouldn't forget him. So he brought along his own band to warm up the crowd and he had ca his campaign slogans were every man a king and share our wealth. And Long cast himself as the benevolent head of state guaranteeing there was plenty to go around if the corrupt politicians, the big business interests, the newspapers and his opponents would just let go of it and share some of it. Sounds very much like our world today. Things don't change, do they, folks? Long's fiery speeches, speeches and campaign rallies generated an almost messianic following. His flamboyance and straightforward-like manner made his promises feel real. Voters were captured by his rhetoric and political savvy, and when the voting was finished, the people made Huey Long governor by so large a margin that has never been matched in Louisiana's history. <clears throat> Excuse me. Later, when he ran for the U.S. Senate, he was again overwhelmingly elected. He had aspirations to be president and was he assassinated at the age of 42. He was faced fiercely hated by his opponents as he was loved by his followers. His legacy continues to this day as every time the Louisiana State University football team takes the field, the band plays Touchdown for Louisiana, and they're playing that fight song that UEP Long wrote. The people were looking for a deliverer, and they thought they had found him. To his credit, UEP Long accomplished much during his short political career. But like so many before and after him, he proved in many ways to be only human. As we look at Isaiah chapter 11 today, the people of Jerusalem and Judah in the prophets Isaiah's type were also living in difficult times. Their leaders were corrupt and placed the nation in dangerous circumstances. They also led the people into rebellion and idolatry, and that was, a, that was about to bring God's judgment on them. They, too, were looking for someone like Huey Long to come to their rescue, and that's where we find the story as we turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Now, a little background, again, about the book of Isaiah. Uh, the book of Isaiah is written by Isaiah the prophet, and his name means Yahweh is salvation. Isaiah has been called the evangelical prophet because he has so much to say about the person and work of Jesus the Messiah. More about person and the work of Jesus is found here than any other book in the Old Testament. According to Gleason Archer in his book, A Survey of Old Testament Introduction, he says this, that is the basic theme of Isaiah's message. That salvation is bestowed only by grace, by the power of God, the Redeemer, rather than by the strength of man or the good works of the flesh. A holy God will not permit unholiness in his covenant people. And he will therefore deal with them in such a way as to chasten and purge them and make them fit to participate in his program of redemption. Isaiah lived in, the, in Jerusalem during the latter half of Israel's kingdom period, which we find in 2 Kings 5, uh, 15 through 21. God had him speak to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. First of all, he spoke of God's judgment. He warned Israel's corrupt leaders that there would be dire consequences as a result of their rebellion against their covenant with God. God would use the Assyrians and then the Babylonians uh, to judge Jerusalem if they continued in idolatry and oppression of the poor. However, 
That announcement was combined with a message of hope. First of all, this message of hope said that there would be a future king descended from David who would establish God's kingdom. In 2 Samuel, we read, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Another message of this hope is that the king would lead Israel in obedience to all the laws of the covenant made at Mount Sinai. And that all this was of God's blessings and salvation that would flow outward to all the nations like God's promise to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, we read, And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curses you I will curse. And in all you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It was this hope that moved Isaiah to speak about to speak out against the corruption and idolatry of Israel in his day. In chapters 1 through 39, there are three large sections that develop Isaiah's warnings of judgment on Israel that culminates in the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon. But in chapters 1 through 39, there is also a message of that hope that after this exile, God's promises that we spoke of would be fulfilled. The first main section of chapters 1 through 39, or chapters 1 through 12, where we find ourselves today, and they focus on God's vision and judgment and hope for Jerusalem. Israel accuses the city's leaders of breaking God's covenant. He accuses them of idolatry and of injustice. God says he will judge the city by sending the nations to conquer Israel. He tells them that this will be like a purifying fire that burns away all that is worthless in Israel. In chapter 6, we have Isaiah's vision where he's given the job of continually announcing coming judgment. No matter how much Isaiah warned the people of their fate for disobeying the Lord, they would never heed the warning. Yet he had to go on proclaiming their fate. What a job. Wouldn't you like to have that one? None of us would be pretty excited. No one would listen to him. And their fate is that they will eventually be taken into captivity. But as always, God provides hope and saves a remnant and a future holy seed. And this is a hope, and the rest of this section, chapters 7 through 12, tell us more of who or what that hope is. Isaiah confronts King Ahaz, a descendant of David and a king of Judah, and announces his downfall. And God says it is the great Assyrian empire that will first chop Israel down and devastate the land. So like the people... In Louisiana in 1928, the nation of Judah in Isaiah's time was looking for a Messiah. They were faced with desperate circumstances. Their king had rejected rejected God's clear instructions and promises. He formed military alliances with the Assyrians only to see them backfire in the worst possible way. Now it was either going to be death or deportation. The people must have questioned, is there anybody out there who cares? Will someone come to the rescue and take up our cause? That was probably the word on the street in Jerusalem and in Isaiah's day. It was most likely the mood in Louisiana and America in 1928. And if we look around uh, our country and what's happening today, uh, many of us, there would be many who would feel the same way. Isaiah's prophecies provided the answers to those questions. Isaiah proclaimed that God will send a messianic king, the Messiah, and the king's name would be Emmanuel, God with us. This king would be the most unique individual that ever lived and that he would have both a human and divine nature. And he would be known as the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And we know that this was the fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. But in Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet takes us well past the earthly life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, by which all who believe are saved. He takes us to the future day when this Messiah, who came over 2,000 years ago, will reign over the entire earth. In Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet gives us a glimpse of what it will be, what that future reign will look like. Why does God want us to see this? Because he wants us to see the triumph of the Savior. He wants us to see what kind of king that we were going to find that we found in the manger in Bethlehem and what can you expect from this king 
the Messiah named Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. I'll be reading from the New America Standard. We're going to look at what kind of triumphant king do we find in the Messiah. First of all, we find a triumphant king that understands what you are going through. Number one, we find a triumphant king that understands what you are going through. We'll look at the first, uh, we'll look at the first three verses. And it says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem, or the stump, of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Okay, we have to understand what, first of all, who and what is uh, Isaiah referring to here. Now, we know it's the Savior, Jesus Christ. But we want to look from what Scripture has to say. So keep your place here and just turn a few chapters back to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, of course, as I mentioned earlier, we have Isaiah's vision of God sitting on his throne. Here, there, here is he's commissioned with a, a difficult task of announcing the coming judgment even though people are not going to heed that judgment. And in verses 11, 13, we'll read this. And it says, Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has moved, removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Here in these verses, we find that Israel is is going to be chopped down like a tree and left like a stump in the field. In verses 11 to 12, the stump itself, it says, will be scorched and burned. That means the nation is going to be taken into captivity to Babylon. But after all this, God says, this stump is a holy seed. In verse 13, the holy seed is its stump. It's a holy seed that will survive into the future. And the Lord will save a remnant, even though the nation will be removed far away into captivity. In verse 13, it says uh, there will be a tenth portion of it. And we know that after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, a tenth of the people return to the land. So turn back to Isaiah chapter 11. With that being said, this stump is this holy seed. Here, Isaiah pictures the nation as a tree cut down, the stump remains, and a new shoot can grow from it. But God's future kingdom will arise by a shoot coming from the stump or the stem of Jesse, David's father. And that holy seed we spoke about in chapter 6 Verse 13 is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, it it reads this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root of the descendant of David. Okay, I am the root of the and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Here we see Christ coming from the stump to save the people. Jesus Christ is the legal descendant of David. No doubt Isaiah was thinking of God's promise to David that a descendant of his will rule over his kingdom uh, forever. Very familiar verses. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 16 says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Isaiah 9 verse 7 says he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. He is rooted in Judah as a Jew himself, the branch. The Hebrew word branch ties in with the name given to Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, the Nazarene. But the word uh, for branch is netzer, the Greek, the, excuse me, the Hebrew word, and it also can mean descendant. Isaiah is in great detail emphasizing the Messiah's royal lineage to the throne. I, uh, a throne that he was denied at his first coming, but a throne that he will sit on at his second coming, one that he will sit on for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom, and then on into eternity. But here he is called a branch. In chapter 4, verse 2 of Isaiah, he's called the branch of the Lord. 
Turn, if you would, keep your place here in Isaiah chapter 11. Turn, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, verse 5 and 6. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 and 6, or in your uh, device, if you have that. And it says that it gives us more uh, this information about who this branch is and uh, some of his characteristics. This branch is in, in Jeremiah chapter 23. It says, Behold, verse 5, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. He's referred to as a righteous branch. And in verse 6 of this same chapter in Jeremiah, we get more clarity of who this person is. He's going to be God himself. He's going to be deity. All right, in the days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, securely, and this is the name by which he is called, the Lord, all capitals, okay, the Lord our righteousness. This person, this Messiah, was going to be God himself. That word Lord in capitals is the most sacred name in the Hebrew Bible for Lord. It means Yahweh, the eternal self-existent one, the great I am, all right? That, that I am. So this righteous branch, back as we find here in um, Isaiah chapter 1, is the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, God himself. Uh, back in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, this, this branch, he's also referred to in other portions of Scripture as the servant branch. But here in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah talks about this branch, this small green shoot that will spring forth from the stump is from the family tree of Jesse. Now we know that Jesse is the father of Israel's greatest human king, and that's David. But it's interesting that Isaiah does not directly refer or mention David's name here. Even though this royal lineage holds incredible importance to the people of Judah and to the nation of Israel, instead Isaiah refers to humble Jesse. Now, Jesse was never a king. Now, being born in the line of Jesse means that the Messiah will not start out as royalty. We know that from the Christmas story. He will have a humble and meager beginning, leading a normal life like you and me. He is a man. He was, he, God himself took on humanity. He, he became a man, so therefore he can identify with you and me and know what best meets your needs, and he knows what you need. In Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, it to this branch, it says, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from there where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Because of that, we have a deliverer, a, a, a human being, a man who's the God-man, who can identify and sympathize with each and every one of us. Let's look at verses 2 and uh, part of the beginning of verse 3. It says, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. In his expository outlines in the New Testament, Warren Wiersbe says this about verse 2. He says, we see all three persons in the Godhead in, in, in our chapter in verse 2. The spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, of the Lord, Yahweh, or Jehovah, shall rest upon him. Christ. We see, the, we, see, we see the triune God at work in, at the life of the nation of Israel, and he's, gonna, he's at the work in our lives as well. It says the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. That's the Holy Spirit would empower him. This Holy Spirit came upon him in, in Matthew chapter 3, we, verses 16 and 17. We see that as the Holy Spirit came upon him at Jesus' baptism. But here we see a sevenfold ministry of the Spirit. All right, it says that his work... Of the, the, of the Messiah, this righteous branch. It says this work will be characterized by wisdom, by understanding, by counsel, by power, by knowledge, by fear of the Lord, and a delight in Him. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, and knowledge qualify Him as the wonderful counselor we, we read about in Isaiah chapter 9. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 says this, We have an advocate... We have a helper. We have a comforter. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That advocate is one who's called up to provide assistance. One who calls, comes up alongside us to provide help. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, it says, For he himself was tempted, and that 
which he was suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. See, Jesus understands what we're going through. He became a man. He can identify with us. He came, of course, to identify for us so that he could die on the cross and take our place for our sins, but he can identify with the plight of each and every one of us. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, it says, Therefore we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw, comp- draw, comp- near com- Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may have receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Time of need. We have one who truly understands, truly who could relate to us, and because he has identified with us. As I look at this passage in Isaiah chapter 11, and we talk about this righteous branch that springs forth from the stump of Jesse, I think about Jesus as a righteous branch with shoots and bear, that bears fruit. But I also think about Another, another passage of Scripture that talks about branches, John chapter 15, where it talks about Jesus as the vine and us as, and his disciples as the branches. In John chapter 15, it, he, we read this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus says here in chapter 11 of Isaiah that a righteous, it says a righteous branch from his roots will bear fruit. Of course, we are the fruit of his labor. He's dying on the cross, those who put our trust in him. But once we become believers, once we put our faith and trust in him, God wants us, Jesus wants us to pursue this an abiding relationship with him. This abiding relationship is natural to the branch and to, as, the, as the branches to the vine, but it must be cultivated in our lives. It is not automatic. Abiding in Christ demands worship, meditation on God's word, prayer, sacrifice, and service, and, but it can be a joyful experience. And once you've begun to cultivate this deeper union with Christ, you have no desire to return or to, to expect anything less. And like the righteous branch that bears fruit in Isaiah chapter 11, we, are, we too are to bear fruit as a result of our relationship with the Messiah. So the triumph of the Savior is also that we share in this abiding relationship with Him which should prompt us, as it says in verse 3, to delight in the fear of the Lord. To fear God is to respond to Him in awe, trust, obedience, and worship. As I mentioned, all three persons of the Trinity are, invo- are suggested here, and they're all worthy of our, awe, of our trust, of our awe, our obedience, and our worship. The Messiah constantly seeks to do what God the Father wants Him to do, and He desires for us to find our delight in him as a result of that abiding relationship you see jesus the messiah he was the hope for israel and he still is the hope for us today that word hope is not an uncertainty it is a certainty see jesus is a certainty he is our hope so my question for you this morning is do you find a triumphant savior in your life is he still the hope for you and for all you do and all you are do you know him personally, this, this hope, Jesus Christ? So we find a triumphant Savior who can uh, give us everything we stand in need of. He understands what you're going through. We also find, number two, a triumphant King that brings righteous judgment to all. Let's look at the end of verse 3 through verse 5. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he see, his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be on his belt, 
uh, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Isaiah is describing how Christ will rule during the millennial kingdom at his second coming. Now millennial, as I mentioned that before, millennial of course means a thousand. It's talking about the a thousand year reign of Christ. And we know this from Revelation chapter 20 verses 2 through 7. You could take a look at that. After Christ's return with the church in, in Revelation chapter 19, Christ tells us that, uh, I mean, John tells us that Christ will rule on the earth for a thousand years. The government of the, the messianic millennial kingdom will be a theocracy. A theocracy is the same form of government that God used for Israel in the Old Testament. However, there's a difference in this future millennial kingdom. The difference is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will personally and visibly, visibly be reigning over all the affairs of mankind. At his second coming, Jesus will judge, as we're talking about, there's going to be judgment. He's going to judge all the Gentiles who sur- survive the tribulation. If you hold your place here and turn to Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 to 33. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 33. It says this, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. This is known as the sheep and goat judgment we find here. Now, the nations... It says here in uh, chapter 25 of Matthew, uh, verse 32, says all the nations will be gathered before him. That's a, that's a way of saying all Gentiles. These, this is a Gentile judgment. These Gentiles will be gathered to a place near Jerusalem to determine their spiritual condition. Those who are righteous, those are the sheep, will be welcomed into the Messiah's kingdom. Look at the next verse, verse 34. It says, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Okay, those are the righteous. Those are the, those who are saved. And it says those who are not saved, those who are, those are the goats. They will be sent away into eternal punishment. Look at verse 41 and verse 46. It says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The internal spiritual condition of the Gentiles is revealed externally by the way they treated Israel during the Great Tribulation. The Messiah then will also judge the Jewish people who are living at the end of the Tribulation, at his second coming. At that time, Jews will be gathered from all over the world to the land of Israel. Turn, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 34 and 35. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 34 and 35. It says, I will bring you out from the peoples and gather from you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people. There I will enter judgment with you face to face. At that point, Jesus will determine which ones are the righteous, those who are saved, and which ones who are not. Uh, remember, this is the, that his second coming at the end of the, the Great Tribulation. And uh, it, while we're in Ezekiel there, in verse 37, it says this, I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the land of the, of the covenant, and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. You see, the righteous will be allowed to enter the messianic kingdom in fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. But the unsaved Jews in Israel will be be cut off and will not be allowed into the messianic kingdom. Isaiah told his readers in in chapter 2 and 3 of Isaiah that the city of Jerusalem will be the center of his government. Uh, And here back in uh, Isaiah chapter 11, you could turn back there if you will, Here back in Isaiah chapter 11, in verses 3 through 5, we find a Messiah that will be a benevolent king. Look again here at verses, uh, the end of verse 3 and then verse 4. It says, 
He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. You see, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge righteously and execute justice. He will strike the land with discipline from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. It says, righteousness will be like a belt around his loins, and faithfulness will be like a belt around his waist. It says that in verse 5. Now, a belt was an integral part of one's clothing in that day. But it was also used figuratively to describe power and strength. So his power, righteousness, will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. These, these words in Isaiah I mean, chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, righteousness, justice, or fairness, and faithfulness are, are, the, are the words that will characterize the Messiah's reign. Each of these words is about conforming to a standard, about meeting a criteria. This is the standard according to which he will judge when, he, when saving and judge when punishing. And it's plain from this passage that Messiah will reign by the authority of God and will rule by the standard of the will of God, not by the will, those of man. And he will judge and rule on an individual basis. We will all stand, some, all of us, will stand before that righteous judge, the King of Kings. Each one of us will be judged according to reality rather than perception. The righteous judge will see you and me for who we really are. Now, for those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, those of us who are saved, those of us who have been born again, we will not be judged at the second coming. Uh, we, will be, we will be taken from this earth seven years prior to that, all right, and then at an event called the rapture, and at some point after the rapture, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's not a judgment to determine whether we're going to heaven or not. That's a judgment to, to uh, will God will reward us or take rewards away based upon what we've done in our life as believers. All right, but you and I, each one of us that know Jesus our Savior, will be judged. But those who have not trusted Jesus Christ in their Savior, uh, those who are unbelieving at the time of the tribulation, uh, those who us who will face a judgment, though those not those of us, those who don't know Jesus Christ as the Savior, they f- they face a judgment at the end of time called the Great White Throne Judgment. Yes, when Jesus returns, He will judge those who are alive, Jews and Gentiles alike. But there'll be a final judgment called the great white throne judgment for those who have never trusted Jesus as their Savior, and they will be thrown into eternal punishment and condemnation forever and ever in the lake of fire. No one will be overlooked. God will deal with each one of us with with precise justice, evaluating our lives with the holiness of God. And when he pronounces his judgment, it is final. All who are made Christ. All who are made right, righteous by faith in Christ will be exalted, and all the others who are called wicked, he will wipe away from the face of the earth, and they will be condemned in the lake of fire. Where will you be on Judgment Day? When Christ comes for the rapture, take, will he be taking you home with him? For those of us who are believers, uh, how will, if you are a believer and he comes, he came, comes today, uh, he finds us. Where is he, how is he going to find you? In John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, it says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you put your faith and trust in him, how will he find you when he returns? Obedient or not so obedient? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you don't know that triumphant Savior, when he returns, you'll be assigned to a place of judgment, eternal punishment, and separation. So if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you have to ask yourself the question, how can I know for sure that I'm going to heaven? See, God uh, is holy and just, and we are not because of sin. Each one of us is separated from a holy God because of sin. 
That's why Jesus Christ came the first time. That's why we celebrate Christmas, the coming of the Savior, to, who was going to go to the cross. He was going to reconcile the world to himself, pay the penalty for each and every one of our sins, so that we can be individually reconciled to him and gain forgiveness and gain eternal life and escape from that judgment. And putting our faith solely in the work, Jesus' death, burial, and his resurrection, his work of the cross, putting our faith and trust solely in him is the only way we have can gain eternal life and escape the eternal wrath that is to come. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you're not sure that you have eternal life, please consider that. Speak with us today. So we find a triumphant king that understands who you're going through. We find a triumphant king that will bring righteous judgment to all. And we find a tri number three, we find a triumphant king that will restore all things. Let's look at verses 6 through 10. It says, And the wolf will do dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young and the fatling and the cup, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them, and the cow will bear it, and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal or a banner for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand, the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea, and he will lift up the, a standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones from, of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Here in Isaiah chapter 11, we find one of the most beautiful descriptions of all the Bible, in all the Bible, of what life will be like under the Messiah's rule in this thousand-year millennial reign. We will see the very nature of the world will be changed. First of all, the curse that was placed on creation since the fall of man will be lifted. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 19. Turn, if you would, there, or on your device. In verse 19, it says, For the nations, excuse me, for the anxious longing of the creation eagerly, eagerly awaits, let me start over, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the slavery of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The Apostle Paul testifies that the creation experiences futility and corruption because of the curse back in Genesis chapter 3. The negative situation will continue until God finishes saving mankind. In Romans 8 verse 23 it says, And not only this, but even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. One result of the curse being removed is that peace will come to the animal kingdom which has been characterized by violence since the days of Eden. E days of Eden. Predators and prey will no longer be natural enemies. All animals again will once again be plant eaters as they were in the original creation. In verse 6, back in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 chapter 11, it says the wolf will will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the cattle will be together, and a child will lead them. But something more striking will happen. The carnivorous animal will see their nature, very nature altered. Look at verse 7. It says, The cow and the bear will graze together, the young ones will lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like a fox, like, like an ox. The fear and terror that has existed since the flood will be replaced with a remarkable sense of ease and comfort. And in verse 11, 
I mean, chapter, verse 8 of chapter 11 points out that an infant will play beside a cobra's pit and a toddler will put his hand into a viper's den. Can you imagine having your child or grandchild playing with poisonous and deadly snakes? The future world under God's perfect son, the King of Kings, is a picture of peace that returns everything to its divinely intended purpose. Let me read that again. The future world under God's perfect son is a picture of peace that returns everything to its divinely intended purpose. And that purpose, like ours should be, is to bring glory to our creator God. Just like it says in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. The curse has sunk the world in darkness. Fear and death will be gone. It is a day that, as we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning together in labor pains for. We see the rest of the picture filled out in verses 9 through 12. The millennial kingdom will be a, also be a place uh, of a wonderfully, excuse me, the millennial kingdom will also be a wonderfully spiritual time. That is first and foremost because the risen, glorified Lord Jesus himself will be physically present. This alone makes this time a time unlike any others in human history. We know also from Revelation chapter 20 that Satan will be bound for that thousand years. There will be no, of his, none of his influence in the world for the entire thousand years. And as we saw earlier, Christ's reign on the earth will be one of true righteousness and justice. And because righteousness will prevail, several things that will be true. First of all, there will be true peace throughout the world. Look at uh, Isaiah 9, the first part of Isaiah 9. It says, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Hurt refers to all that is evil, all that is bad, all that causes pain. Destroy means decay or ruin. Everything we do to one another that causes pain. These things will be gone. Secondly, the reason such peace and tranquility is possible is that all the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, as we see in the second part of verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34 says this, They will teach, they will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each, each man his brother. Excuse me. It says in uh, Jeremiah 31, 34, They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. According to the Bible Knowledge Commentary, this means that more people, more than people knowing intellectually, okay, this means more than people knowing intellectually about the Lord. The idea is that people everywhere will know him and will live accordingly to God's principles in his word. They will know him in a real and personal way because he will be physically present. He will be physically present. And in verse 9 to 12, 9 and 10 says, In that day the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, will stand as a signal or a banner, which is a rallying point for all the peoples of the earth. In that day, this banner, it says, all verse 10 says, The nations... Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal or a banner for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. This will be a rallying point for all the peoples of the earth. All the peoples, all the nations will seek him, and his resting place, the millennial, te millennial temple, will be glorious. So third, this means that there will be universal worship of the Lord Jesus centered in his magnificent new temple in Jerusalem. About this, Paul Benoit, in his book, Understanding End Times Prophecy, says this, This worship will no doubt be of quality and depth, never be seen before on the earth, as righteous Jews and Gentiles gladly come to Jerusalem to praise the great Savior King. And with the glory of the Lord once again present in the temple, the scene of worship will be best be described as awesome. Jerusalem will be like a spiritual magnet drawing people to worship and praise the Lord. Jesus himself said that many people from outside Israel will have a part in God's kingdom. God had promised that, that through Abraham all the nations of the world would be blessed. 
And it says in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. So Jesus is going to restore all things to himself, and that means uh, a perfect worship. So the, we could summarize Isaiah's message to us as believers, this future reign that's coming, the future promises for us. Uh, as a, there's a little newspaper headline that says, We Win. Isaiah's message for us as believers is we win. We know we're on the winning side. We know what's promised for us. We won't go through the wrath of the tribulation. We won't suffer punishment or eternal separation. And we will suffer. We will not suffer at all. We will, we will we rejoice and live forever in eternity in bliss and joy with our Savior himself. So we win. So we find a triumphant king in chapter 11 of Isaiah that understands what you are going through. The Messiah was the hope for Israel, and he's still our hope today. Jesus knows us intimately, and he wants us to know him as well. He wants us to take comfort, and not, not only does he know us, but he knows what we need. He will provide our every need. He's there for us no matter what we are going through. He's a, we find a triumphant king that will bring righteous judgment to all. Jesus is returning as the righteous judge. At his return, it says in Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will judge each one of us, believer and unbeliever. If, we are here, if he were returned today, are you ready to face him? And we find a triumphant king that will restore all things. We are promised a world where there will be no more tears. There will be no more, any more death. There will be no longer any more mourning or crying or pain. There will be a world where the tabernacle of God, Jesus Christ himself, is among men and he, is, he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And we'll find a world where he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So we win. We know that we are on the winning side. So as believers in Jesus Christ, let us live like subjects of a triumphant king. Let us live like, triumph like subjects of a triumphant savior. Let us tell others and encourage them to know and come to know this triumphant king and what he has provided for us and what he's going to provide for us. That is our job going forward. And if you're here today, and if you're not sure that you know this triumphant Savior, if you don't have a personal relationship, but if you're not sure about that, if you can't answer the question, do you know for sure if I'm going to heaven? He may be speaking to you to put your faith and trust in him so that you too can know this triumphant Savior. Let's spend the rest of our Christmas season, the rest of our time going forward as, as believers, as, uh, as, as believers in this triumphant Savior proclaiming this message to a lost and dying world. Father, we do thank you for this message from our, the book of Isaiah, written uh, thousands of years ago, written 2,700, almost 3,000 years ago, telling us what, what our world will be like when the Savior returns. Oh, Father, I know each one of us and knows Jesus as his Savior. Father, long for the day when we live in a perfect world where there's no more sin, there's no more suffering, there's no more of the, the things of life that... that that, uh, that graded us, Lord, uh, the suffering that, that's all around us. Uh, Father, we, we long for that day, but Father, we know there's many uh, that are in our world, many of our family, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, people in our community. There may be even people sitting in this auditorium who don't know for sure that they're going to heaven. Oh, God, I pray that we would live like children of the King. We would live like children of this triumphant king, that we would draw, you would draw them to yourself through us and give us the opportunity to proclaim this message to them. Father, go before us this day. Father, I pray for 2021. Uh, Father, that would be a year unlike any other, that you would draw many people to yourself. Use us for your honor and your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Frank. Let's all stand up together and let's sing. This is amazing grace.
I see for all that you've done for me. 